We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, Rumpole and Memories of Christmas Past by John Mortimer Adapted by Richard Stoneman Starring Julian Rhine-Tutt as Horace Rumpole Ah, that's better Chateau Thames Embankment Who on earth is singing carols in Equity Court? Surely that's not Judge Bullingham. Erskine Brown? Hilda? Oh, God. I have a terrible feeling I agreed to join them. Not just yet. I'm afraid I don't feel quite imbued with the Christmas spirit. At this time of year, I always find myself reviewing the lessons I've learned in the preceding 12 months. Lesson one. As an old Bailey hack, your ex-customers will never want to see you again. There have been times, however, when recognising a face once seen in trouble has greatly assisted me in the solution of some legal problem and carried me to triumph in a difficult case. Take, for instance... Christmas last year. We've been invited to Norfolk, Rumpole. She who must be obeyed had spoken. And the way she said Norfolk sent an icy shiver through my bones. I was at school with Poppy Longstaff. What's that got to do with anything? Poppy's husband, Roger, is rector of Cold Sands. Cold Sands? It's a village with a church in Norfolk. We have to go there, Rumpole. Oh, good God. And so, of course, we did. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. As soon as we got out of the taxi, we were slapped around the face by a wind which must have started in freezing Siberia and gained nothing in the way of warmth on its journey across the plains of Europe. We were greeted cheerfully by Poppy. Her husband, Roger, was a slender wraith of a man with a high aquiline nose, two flapping wings of grey hair on each side of his face, and a vague air of perpetual anxiety. But I fear the power of prayer isn't always enough. For instance, I'm having terrible trouble with the church tower. Oh, dear, poor you. Rumpel! Hilda shot me a look of stern disapproval which I knew meant that it would be more polite if I abandoned my overcoat while tea was being served. The tower, although of rare beauty, had not been much restored since the Saxons built it and the Normans added the finishing touches. Three thousand pounds were needed for essential repairs. We had hoped that Donald Compton would help us. He wouldn't notice three thousand pounds, but he took exception to what I said at the Remembrance Day service. Ah. I, um... I prayed for dead German soldiers, too, you see. It seemed only fair. Well, yes. But apparently Donald Compton thought it unpatriotic. Oh. He, he's bought the old manor house, and a Union Jack flies from a pole on the roof. Oh, really? I believe he lived in Canada for a while, married a young Canadian wife, then came home to England, built the village hall... Uh, the cricket pavilion, and a tennis court for the school. Oh, goodness. If it wasn't for my sympathy for dead Germans, he might have helped us with the church tower. Oh. Hmm. 
Apart from this one lapse, the charming Donald Compton seemed to be the perfect English squire and country gent. I was about to judge for myself, since we'd been invited for drinks before lunch on Christmas Day at the Compton's Manor House. I prayed for a yule log blazing there, so I might be allowed to thaw out gradually. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Christmas morning arrived, and still frozen, I sat in church as close to a belching radiator as I could, half listening to the Reverend Roger. Celebration, and as a sign of Christmas fellowship. Will you all stand and shake hands with those in front of and behind you? Roger, in full canonicals, standing on the steps in front of the altar, made this bold suggestion as though he'd just thought of the idea. It didn't appear to please the man who turned to me from the row in front. He was, as Hilda pointed out, the great Donald Compton in person, a man of middling height with suspiciously black hair. An impressive moustache, also black, dressed in a tweed suit with a tan, which must have been expensive to preserve during winter. He had soft brown eyes, which looked away from me almost at once, as with a touch of dry fingers he turned around, and I was left for the rest of the service with no more than a well-tailored back and the sound of an uncertain tenor voice joining in the hymns. I wondered how many generations of cold sands villagers, their eyes bright and faces flushed with the wind, had belted out these hymns. I also thought, how depressed the great Donald Compton would feel if Jesus's instruction to sell all and give it to the poor should ever be taken literally. At the manor, there was a huge log fire crackling and throwing a dancing light on the marble floor of the circular entrance hall, with its great staircase leading up into private shadows. The cream of cold sands was being entertained with champagne and canapes by the new lord of the manor. They must all be his ancestors. I'm sorry. All these people, on the wall. Hilda was looking at the pictures hanging in the great hall, and in particular at a general in a scarlet coat on a horse prancing at the front of some distant battle. My mouth was full of cream cheese enveloped in smoked salmon. I swallowed and said, "Hmm. Oh, I shouldn't think so. Hmm. After all, he only bought the house quite recently." But I expect he brought his family portraits here from somewhere else. Oh, you mean he had them under the bed in his old bachelor flat in Wimbledon, and now he's hung them round an acre or two of walls? Well, just look at the family resemblance. I'm absolutely certain that all of these are old Comptons. Old Comptons.、Mm. When she said those two words, something clicked inside my fizz-filled brain. Old Comptons. I looked away from the paintings. And saw Donald standing nearby. I studied his face, his moustache, tried to imagine him, a little thinner, with no facial hair. There was something about him. Hello, I don't think we've met. Actually, we have. We shook hands briefly in church this morning. My name's Rumpole, and I'm staying with Roger and Poppy Longstaff. But didn't we also meet somewhere else, a long time ago? Good old Roger. We have our differences, of course, but he's a saintly man. Takes one to know one. Ah, I expect you'd like to see the library. 
wouldn't you? Mr. Rampo? I'm sure you're interested in ancient history. Lead on, Mr. Compton. We headed off down a long, dark corridor. Hilda's two words, Old Compton's, had reminded me of where and when I'd first met mine host. Old Compton is a street in Soho. Perhaps that's why one of its former residents, Ricardo Perducci, to use the real name of the man who was taking me to see his library, perhaps that was why he'd adopted the surname Compton. I had received the very same handshake, a slight touch and quick turn away, when I'd said goodbye to Riccardo Perducci in the cells under the old bailey and left him to start a sentence of three years in prison for blackmail. His trial had ended, I now remembered, at the very start of 1958. The Perducci territory had been, in those days, not rolling Norfolk acres, but a number of Soho strip clubs and clip joints. Girls would stand in front of these dives and lure the lonely, the desperate and the unwary inside. Sometimes they would escape after paying two guineas for an insipid cocktail. Unlucky, affluent and important customers would be offered a more intimate kind of hospitality. And all of this carefully recorded by microphones and cameras to produce material which was used for systematic and highly profitable blackmail. When I mitigated for my client, Ricardo, I stressed the lack of direct evidence against him. He was a shadowy figure who kept himself well in the background and was known as a legend rather than a familiar face around Soho. That only shows what a big wheel he is, bellowed Judge Bullingham who was trying the case, and taking some pleasure from seeing his learned peer squirming in the court. In desperation, I tried the Christmas approach. Crimes forgiven, sins remitted, mercy triumphant. Such was the message of the story that began in Bethlehem. The mad bull snorted. Ha! That story ended in a criminal trial and a stiff sentence for at least one thief. Now Ricardo and I stood in his library, some distance in time and space from the old bailey. The leather-bound books which filled the shelves around us had, I suspected, been bought by the yard. Ricardo spoke quietly. Oh, I thought something like this would happen sooner or later. Well, now, you seem to have done pretty well for yourself. Are solid citizens still misconducting themselves around old Compton Street? I wouldn't know. I gave all that up and went into the property business near my prison. The screws there were ready and willing to do the deals on the outside. For a small commission. I bet they were. I did my time, and when I came out, I made 50 grand. Well, then, I did you a good turn losing your case. A bit of luck is on a Judge Bullingham didn't believe in the remission of sins. You think I got what I deserved? Use every man after his dessert, and who should escape whipping? Oh, can I trust you, Mr Rampole? Can I ask you to say nothing that might stop the Lord Chancellor from putting me on the local bench? The local bench? You? Well, don't you think I do pretty well as a magistrate? I suppose you could speak from personal experience of the British justice system, and I'm sure you'd have some respect for the quality of mercy. Ah, I've got no time for that sort of nonsense. It's about time we cracked down on crime. Look, can I trust you not to go out there and spread the word about the last time we met, eh? That depends on how well you've understood the Christmas message. 
What is the Christmas message? Perhaps generosity. Ah, <laughs> so you want a nice bunk? Oh no, 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 not me. But there is an impoverished church tower in need of urgent resuscitation. That Roger Longstaff, he's no patriot. Oh, but you are. Are you, Ricardo? Do I, I do a great deal of work for the British Legion. And I'm sure next Poppy Day they'll appreciate what you've done for the church tower. Filio di puttana. He looked at me for a long minute in silence. And I thought that if this scene had been taking place in a back room in Soho, there might quite soon have been the flash of a bladed weapon. Instead, his hand went to an inside pocket and produced nothing more lethal than a checkbook. I decided to push my luck. While you're in a giving mood, the rectory is in desperate need of more radiators. This is bloody blackmail. Well, Ricardo Peducci, you should know. Therefore, Christian men, be sure, wealth or rank possessing, ye who now will bless the poor, shall yourselves find blessing. Hilda, there's something bubbling on the stove. It smells peculiar. Oh, God, not more Brussels sprouts. I first realised it was nearly Christmas when I saw a sprig of holly over the list of prisoners hung on the wall of the cells under the Old Bailey. My client was the 17-year-old Edward Malloy, one of the huge South London family whose criminal activities provided much welcome grist to the Rumpole Mill. Holding his hand and pleading his case was Edward's mother, Peggy. Now, I want him home for Christmas, Mr Rumpole. Which Christmas was what I thought, but didn't say. Instead, I forced out, All things are possible, Mrs Malloy. As I looked through my brief and inadvertently used my waistcoat as an ashtray, I hoped I wasn't onto another loser. I'd had a run of bad luck in the preceding months. Edward was charged with willful murder, and the consequences of failing yet again to win a not guilty verdict were too awful to contemplate. If I failed to impress the jury, this callow teenager sitting in front of me would be a middle-aged man before he regained his freedom. Edward lived in a kind of decaying barracks, a sort of high-rise Lubyanka known as Keir Hardy Court, together with his parents, his various brothers, and his fifteen-year-old sister, Noreen. This particular branch of the Malloy family were located on the thirteenth floor. Below them, on the 12th, lived a large part of the Timpson clan. I have spoken before about the relationship between the Malloys and the Timpsons, roughly akin to the Montagues and Capulets. Trouble on this occasion began with the casting of the Nativity play at the local secondary modern school. When Bridget Timpson was chosen to play Mary, Noreen Malloy announced in the playground that Bridget Timpson was a spotty little tart quite unsuited to play any role of which the most notable characteristic was virginity. Hearing this, Bridget Timpson kicked Noreen Malloy between the anthracite bunkers, which must have been very painful. Within a few days, war was renewed twixt the Timpson and Malloy children, and fireworks were posted through the Malloy's letterbox. On what became known as the night in question, battle was joined on the stone staircase of Keir Hardy Court. It appeared that the downstairs flat had repelled the invaders. 
but Kevin Timpson lay immobile on the stairs. Having been stabbed with a slender and pointed blade, he was in a condition that soon led to him being referred to as the deceased. <sighs> Various Malloys were arrested, and I made an application for bail for my client, which was refused. But at least a speedy trial was ordered. So, even as Bridget Timpson was giving her Virgin Mary at the secondary modern, the rest of her family was waiting to give evidence against Edward in that home of British drama, caught one at the old Bailey. Oh, no! No, he wasn't tooled up, Mr Rumpole. I was listening to the defendant's mother in a cell beneath the court. He swore on my life that he didn't have a knife, an axe or any kind of cutter. Really? What about his... sword? Oh, you're talking about the one he bought up at Portobello Market. I promise you, Mr Rumpole, I promise you. He never had that with him when Kevin Timpson was stabbed. There was one part of the prosecution evidence that I found particularly troubling. It was agreed that on the previous Sunday lunchtime, Edward Malloy had appeared on the stairs of Keir Hardy Court and flourished what appeared to be an antique cavalry sabre at the assembled Timpsons, who were just popping down the pub. A reasonable prosecuting counsel would not attempt to introduce evidence about the sword. Unfortunately for me and my client, the prosecuting counsel was the very unreasonable Basil Rigglesworth QC, known to me as the Mad Monk. When I went into court, Basil was standing with his shoulders hunched up round his large red ears, and his huge hands joined on his lectern in what seemed to be an attitude of devoted prayer. Ah, Rumpo, are you defending as usual? Yes, Rigglesworth. Are you prosecuting? As usual? Of course. I never defend. One doesn't like to call witnesses who may not be telling the truth. Hmm. And you must have a few unhappy moments when calling certain members of the constabulary. I have never called a dishonest policeman. And as for the detective inspector in this case, I've known Mr Cartwright for years. In fact, this is the officer's last trial before he retires. He could no more invent a verbal against a defendant than flap his arms and fly to the moon. Now, look here, Rigglesworth. That evidence about my client having a sword, it's quite irrelevant. The murder clearly wasn't done with an anti-cavalry sabre. It was done with a small, thin blade. If he's a man who carries weapons, why is that irrelevant? He's a child. He's a boy of 17. Give us a chance. So, darling, please don't introduce this evidence of the sword. The Malloys sound in great need of prosecution and punishment. Why shouldn't I tell the jury about your client's sword? Can you give me one good reason? Yes. Yes, the thing is, you see, the, th the thing is, it's Christmas. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. It would be idle to pretend that the first day in court went well, although Rigglesworth did at least restrain himself from mentioning the sword. He hadn't, however, finished with me yet. As I sat in Pomeroy's wine bar that evening, his voice interrupted my thoughts. I say, Rumpole, I'd be so grateful for a little help. I looked up to see Rigglesworth dressed in an old Macintosh doing business with Jack Pomeroy at the sales counter. When I crossed to him, 
He was not buying the jumbo-sized bottle of ginger beer, which I imagined might be his Christmas tipple, but a respectably aged bottle of Chateau Pichon Longville. I asked what I could do for him. Well, as you know, Rampole, I live in Highgate, where the Anglican sisters of St Agnes are anxious to buy a present for their bishop. A dozen bottles for Christmas. Well, they've asked for my advice, but I, I know so little about wine. You wouldn't care to try this for me, if you're not especially busy. I pictured the rissoles and peas that would be waiting for me in the oven upon my return, and assured Rigglesworth that I could spare five minutes to help him out. As we sampled the claret together, I saw a chance of getting him to commit himself on the question of the sword, as well as absorbing an unusually decent bottle. On the, on the nose? Mm. After the Pichon Longville, I was kind enough to assist him by sampling a Boyd Cantonac. And then I suggested that the bishop might be a Burgundy man, and the nuns might care to invest in a decent Macon. Rigglesworth said he'd never heard of Macon, and was so grateful for my guidance on the matter. After a couple of glasses, I raised the evidence about young Malloy and the sword, and asked if he'd had any further thoughts. Rigglesworth said he remembered me saying that he shouldn't bring that out for the simple reason that it was Christmas, but he wasn't sure that was a good enough justification. The trouble is, Rumpole, I, I don't quite see the relevance of the festive season to the question of your man, Malloy, threatening his neighbours with a sword. Surely, Rigglesworth, you're of a religious disposition? I'd like to consider myself so. Then practice a little Christian tolerance. Tolerance towards evil. Evil? What on earth do you mean, evil? Perhaps that's your trouble, Rumpole. <laughs> you don't recognise evil mm. when you see it. Oh, I recognise evil when I see it, all right. I see evil when you lock up a 17-year-old boy at Her Majesty's pleasure, when Her Majesty may very probably forget all about the poor sod, banging him up with a couple of hardened, violent cases in their chamber pots for 22 hours a day. That, oh darling, is what I call evil. I did hear that the bishop likes a nice glass of port. In the spirit of Christmas tolerance, I'll help you to sample some of Pomeroy's light and tawny. A little later, Rigglesworth held up his glass in a reverent sort of fashion and went back to the subject of evidence to be withheld simply because it was Christmas. Do you know your man, Malloy, is always called Errol by his friends? <laughs> and do you know why they call him Errol? Because he's always fighting with that sword of his. <laughs> he's named after Errol Flynn, you see. Detective Inspector Cartwright told me that. <laughs> Rather amusing, I thought. He's retiring in the new year. Not Errol Flynn, he's dead. I mean, Mr Cartwright's retiring. Hmm. <laughs> Do you think we should settle on this port for the bishop? Or would you like to try a glass of something else? The reason for Malloy's nickname had set me back a bit. I hoped the mad monk was wrong, but his smug expression suggested he wasn't. Feeling light-headed, not to say quite drunk, I decided to try again to find a softer side to my opponent. For God's sake, Rigglesworth! I've had six losers in a row down the old bailey. Can't I be included in any Christmas spirit that's going around? Hmm. He seemed to be thinking. Hmm. 
Well, I shall certainly attempt to conduct the case of R. V. Malloy in the most appropriate way for this festive season. When they finally threw us out of Pomeroy's, we considered the possibility of buying the bishop some brandy in the cock tavern, and finally bottles of beer in the king's head. I let my instinct, like an aged horse, carry me on to the underground and home to Gloucester Road. There, I discovered the Rissoles, like some traces of a vanished civilization, fossilized in the oven. She who must be obeyed was already in bed, feigning sleep. When I climbed in beside her, she opened a hostile eye. You're drunk, Rumpole. <sighs> I have been having legal discussion on the subject of the admissibility of certain evidence, vital from my client's point of view. And just for a change, Hilda, I think I won. <laughs> oh, get, go to sleep. In the morning, you will feel absolutely terrible. As with all the grimmer predictions of she who must be obeyed, this one turned out to be true. I sat in court the next day. My mouth tasted of matured birdcage. And from a long way off, I heard Rigglesworth asking questions of Bridget Timpson who stood looking particularly saintly and virginal in the witness box. About a week before the night of the murder, did you see the defendant, Edward Malloy, on your staircase flourishing a weapon? It is no exaggeration to say that I felt deeply shocked and considerably betrayed. Despite his promise to me, Rigglesworth had turned his back on the spirit of the great Christmas festival. He came not to bring peace, but a sword. I clambered with some difficulty to my feet. After consuming so much wine, port, brandy and beer just a few hours before, I was scarcely in the mood for a legal argument. Mr Justice Gwent Evans looked up in surprise and greeted me in his usual chilly fashion. Yes, Mr Lampool? Do you object to this evidence? Of course I object, you buffoon! Was what I thought, but didn't say, along with... It's inhuman, unnecessary, unmerciful, and likely to lead to my losing another case. Also, it is clearly contrary to a solemn and binding verbal contract entered into after a tasting session for a bloody bishop in Highgate. But all I managed was a strangled... Yes... I feel sure Mr. Rigglesworth has considered the matter most carefully, and that he would not lead this evidence unless he considered it entirely relevant. I looked at the mad monk on the seat beside me. He was smiling with a mixture of hearty cheerfulness and supreme pity, as though I was sinking rapidly and he had come to administer supreme unction. I made a few ill-chosen remarks to the court, but I was in no condition that morning to enter into a complicated legal argument on the admissibility of evidence. It wasn't long before Bridget Timpson had told a deeply disapproving jury all about Errol's sword and swordsmanship. 
The judge stuck the knife in during his summing up by describing young Malloy as a man who was clearly prepared to attack with cold steel whenever it suited him. He was found guilty, of course, and, having offered my condolences to him and his sobbing mother, I called in for refreshment at my favourite watering hole. There, to my surprise, was my opponent, Rigglesworth, sharing an expensive-looking bottle of Premier Crew with Detective Inspector Cartwright. <laughs> I stood at the bar, absorbing a consoling glass of Pomeroy's Very Ordinary. The Detective Inspector came over. He gave me a friendly, sympathetic smile. Uh, sorry about that, sir. Still, win a few, lose a few. <laughs> In my case, it's win a few, lose a lot. Uh, you can never have won this one, Mr. Rumpole. I'm retiring, as you know, and Mr. Rigglesworth promised me faithfully that my last verdict would be a guilty. He told me, in a manner of speaking, that this would be a Christmas present from him to me, as it were. <laughs> He's a great one for the spirit of Christmas. Yes, I'm sure he is. I looked across at the mad monk, and a terrible suspicion entered my head. What was all that nonsense about buying wine for a bishop? I searched my memory and could find no trace of our having, in the end, bought any sort of bottles for any sort of cleric. Nor could I remember seeing Rigglesworth actually swallowing more than a glass or two all night long. Was Rigglesworth as inexperienced as he'd had me believe in the art of selecting claret? I watched him now as he poured and sniffed a glass of Premier Crew and held it critically to the light. Had the whole evening's events been nothing but a deception? A sinister attempt to nobble a rumpole, to present him with such a stupendous hangover that he would stumble in his legal argument? Was it all in aid of Detective Inspector Cartwright's Christmas present? I looked at Rigglesworth. He was, of course, perfectly right about me. I did not recognise evil when I saw it. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a one-horse open sleigh. Hilda, are you ready yet? It's nearly half past. No, quarter two. How long does it take to change a frock, for heaven's sake? <sighs> I really don't know why people have parties on Boxing Day. It's bad enough having to attend Christmas parties at work. Soapy Sam Ballard, QC, our devout head of chambers, puts a three-line whip on those occasions. Two years ago, he decided to issue invitations not only to other learned friends in equity court, but also to far-flung members of the junior branch of the legal profession. Erskine Brown was against the idea. This party is very much a family thing for the chaps in chambers and the clerk's room. If we ask common and daily solicitors from God knows where, it looks very much as though we're touting for briefs. Nothing wrong with a bit of touting. I felt I simply had to disagree with Erskine Brown, as I always do. Anyway, after a vote, it was agreed that invitations should be issued to a smattering of solicitors from the better class of firms. Ding dong merrily on high, in heaven the bells are ringing. Ding dong merrily the sky is driven with angels singing. Lord. And so it came to pass 
that on the night before the night before Christmas, paper streamers dangled from the bookcase full of All England Law reports in Ballard's room and were hooked up to his views of the major English cathedrals. Barristers' wives had been invited. But Mrs. Hilda Rumpel was conspicuous by her absence. And Claude Erskine Brown was the first to notice. Where's Hilda? Has she abandoned you at last? Of course not. She's got a cold, a very bad cold. No man likes to admit to being deserted. But, in truth, she who must be obeyed had decided to take our son, Nicholas, and spend that Christmas with her school friend, Dodo Mackintosh, in Cornwall. Problems of a marital nature between me and she who must had arisen, then grown, at the end of November. Hilda kept on and on about my smoking, and I refused to acknowledge that I was addicted to the small cigars that I enjoyed once or twice a day, with a third or fourth at home in the evening. Hilda insisted I gave them up completely. I insisted I wouldn't. She then announced her intention to leave me for the festive season, but I thought it an empty threat. When I came back from the Old Bailey three days before Christmas, however, she and Nicholas had already taken the train to Penzance. Erskine Brown had clearly been drinking heavily. He lost interest in my missing wife and instead gazed across the room, trying to focus on the clerical dot. Look at her, Rumpel. Look at the poor girl. I just told her our love can never be. She is merely a typist. I would be a Queen's Council eventually. I've broken her heart, of course. I watched Dot for a while and noticed that she seemed to be having no problem at all in getting over the devastating news from Claude that their imaginary affair was over. Far from being broken-hearted, she seemed quite happy kissing Henry under the mistletoe. And then, to my surprise, I saw my wife enter the room. I thought you had a cold, Hilda, that's what Rumpel said. Stuff and nonsense. Rumpel doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, there you are, Rumpel. Aren't you spending Christmas with Dodo Mackintosh? Not anymore. The silly witch has taken leave of her senses. She's become a vegetarian. Oh, God. No meat, just vegetables Ugh. and nuts. Oh. Can you imagine that, Rumpel? Dodo was planning a Christmas dinner consisting of nuts and vegetables washed down with water. Oh. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. She's decided to turn her back on alcohol at this time of year. Well, that's not my idea of Christmas. We have a proper Christmas dinner, don't we, Rumpel? Indeed we do, Hilda. Mm. After the ritual exchange of presents, socks or tie for me, lavender water for Hilda, we always ate enough to ensure a gentle snooze during the broadcast by Her Majesty the Queen. I'm glad you're back, Hilda. I told her as I felt for a small cigar. Now, where did I... But all I could find was an empty pocket. Don't worry. I bought you these. What she produced, decorated with stars and Christmas robins, was a packet of small cigars which she presented to me. Thank you, Hilda. Thank you very much. It's just a small present, but it is Christmas. I couldn't help smiling as I lit a cigarillo and blew the smoke up towards the ceiling. She who must went in search of much-needed booze, and I looked around the party. No!
Chelsea's. There were half a dozen solicitors present. One stood out, superior to all the rest, a solicitor of the class we seldom saw around Equity Court. He had come in earlier with one hand outstretched to Ballard. Campbell Forsyth, happy Christmas. Awfully kind of you fellows to invite one of the junior branch. He appeared to be in his well-preserved fifties, with grey wings of hair above his ears, and a clean-shaven, pink and still single chin poised above what I took to be an old Etonian tie. He accepted a measure of Pomeroy's very ordinary white plonk from Henry and drank it bravely, his expression suggesting that he was more used to sipping Chassin Montrachet. He turned to Erskine Brown and purred. I'm looking for a hard-hitting barrister to brief in the family division. I've got the Geoffrey Twyford divorce coming up. Pretty hairy bit of infighting over the estate and the custody of young Lord Shiplake. I thought you'd be just right for it. Is that the Duke of Twyford? In spite of his other affectations, Erskine Brown's snobbery is completely genuine. <clears throat> Forsyth confirmed the Duke's identity, then moved on to some upcoming attractions. I'm also a stump for a man to take on our insurance business, but uh, I suppose you'd be far too busy. Erskine Brown failed to hide his excitement. Assured Forsyth he had plenty of time, at least he was sure he could make some time. And then I saw Forsyth staring at me and waited for him to announce that the Marquis of something or other had stabbed his butler in the library and could I possibly make myself available for the trial. Instead, he muttered something about this being a frightfully good party and wandered off to refresh his empty glass. Suddenly, she who must be obeyed was at my elbow and not sounding best pleased. What's the matter with you, Rumpole? Why didn't you push yourself forward? I told her I didn't care for divorce since it was too bloodthirsty for me. She urged me to go after Forsyth and make myself known. I interrupted the solicitor as he briefed Erskine Brown on a case which showed a gross overestimation of Claude's forensic powers. Of course, the client would have to understand that the golden tongue of Mr Erskine Brown cannot be hired on the cheap. I thought that to refer to Claude, whose voice could best be compared to a rusty saw, as golden-tongued, was a bit of an exaggeration. Nevertheless, Forsyth urged him to think it over quickly and promised to be in touch with his clerk. But when he saw me approaching, he decided there was no time like the present to find Henry and have a word in his ear. This legal Santa Claus moved away in the general direction of the clerk's room and... Once more, Rumpole was left with nothing in his stocking. Later, after a visit to the little barrister's room, I was stumbling back along the corridor when I heard a peculiar rattling sound emanating from Erskine Brown's office. I pushed open his door and found his desk palely lit by the old gas lamp from outside in Equity Court. There was a dark-suited figure standing behind the desk who seemed to be trying the locked drawers. I switched on the light and found myself staring at Forsyth. And as I looked at him, the years rolled away and I was back in court as a white wig defending one of my first-ever clients, a crooked house agent. Derek Newton. 
Inner London Sessions. You were done for raising mortgages on deserted houses that you didn't actually own. You got two years, I seem to remember. And now here you are, searching chambers for some petty cash. Uh, I knew you'd recognise me, Mr Rumpole, sooner or later. Well, things aren't too easy when you're knocking 60, and the business world's full of wide boys up to all the tricks. You can't get far on one good suit in the old Etonian tie nowadays. I can only appeal to you for leniency. But coming to our party, promising briefs to my learned friends... I'm sorry. Truly I am, Mr Rumpole. It's just... I always wanted to be a solicitor, you see. Didn't have the brains, I suppose. All the contacts, it's who you know in this game, isn't it? It can be, yes. I enjoy walking through the temple of an evening. And this time of year, I like to find a party. There's always a few of them on, every night, in some chambers or other. I offer a bit of work to some of the more desperate-looking barristers. <laughs> you should see their little faces light up, Mr Rumpole. Warms my heart to see how grateful they are. For what? None of your so-called briefs is the genuine article. Yes, but they don't know that. And it is the season of giving. So, where's the harm, really and truly? Eh, Mr Rumpole? Hmm. I went back to the party and explained to Erskine Brown that Mr Campbell Forsyth had made a phone call and had to leave on urgent business. Claude explained that he'd offered him a highly remunerative brief. If you take my advice, Claude, you and your golden tongue would do well to take the brief. It was, after all, the season of goodwill, and I couldn't find it in my heart to spoil Claude's Christmas. As the party came to an end, we filled our glasses and various toasts were drunk to the Queen, to our chambers at Equity Court, and to Soapy Sam, our unlearned leader. At the end of it, I filled my glass again. I have one more toast. To the class of person who'll keep us all in bread and butter and Pomeroy's plonk, without whom there'd be no barristers, no judges, no politicians, and nothing much to put in our newspapers. If they stopped work... We'd all be on the national assistance or washing up in pubs. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the criminals of England. <laughs> the criminals of England. Most of them drank, but I heard Soapy Sam insist to Hilda that her husband was impossible. Did she think he'd ever change? No, I don't think he will. She said that apparently without regrets. Truly, a Christmas miracle. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Oh, star. In Rumpole and Memories of Christmas Past by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Julian Rhine Tutt, and his wife Hilda was Jasmine Hyde. Donald Compton was played by Stephen Critchlow. Claude Erskine Brown, Nigel Anthony, and Campbell Forsyth was Ewan Bailey. Other parts were played by members of the company. Rumpole and Memories of Christmas Past was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4. Beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. <laughs>